Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, what's good, New York? This is uh, Jack Devine, he, him pronouns, and you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live on WBAI 99.5 FM. We are a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 70,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Today is a Democratic Party primary here in the greatest city in the world in the so-called beacon of democracy. Well, here at Revolutions Per Minute, we absolutely encourage all our listeners to head out to the polls and vote for the candidates who you believe best support the interests of working class people. We also do not entertain any illusions about who rules this country and what they are capable of in order to protect their wealth and power. We have been living through one of the largest uprisings in American history, as the rapidly deteriorating material conditions have fully exposed whose lives matter to capital and the state. The struggle for black lives has demonstrated the immense courage of those who put themselves on the line for a collective liberation, while it has revealed the tyrannical brutality of the ruling class and their sycophants. Today, we are joined by Naz Ahmad to discuss the arrest of Black Lives Matter protesters Aruj Rahman and Colin Ford Mattis, who are being threatened with life sentences for the crime of solidarity. We'll discuss how this case represents a further escalation in the United States government's descent into authoritarian repression of dissent. Throughout the episode, we'll also give updates from the streets on get-out-the-vote efforts throughout the city. But first, the headlines from Simone Norman. In local news, the Rent Guidelines Board voted to freeze rents on rent-stabilized apartments for next year. Leaked emails between top aides to Mayor de Blasio show many of his own staff members were arrested and attacked by police officers in the same confrontation with protesters in which de Blasio praised the NYPD's behavior. 99 members of the Assembly and State Senate and several major unions released a letter demanding that the state taxes the rich to cover budget shortfalls due to the COVID-19 crisis. City Council member Carlos Menchaca of Sunset Park called for the council to issue a vote of no confidence in Mayor de Blasio and call on Governor Cuomo to remove him from office in response to the mayor's handling of peaceful protests against police brutality. An executive order signed by Governor Cuomo in March allowed patients who tested positive for COVID-19 but with stable symptoms to be discharged from hospitals to nursing homes, resulting in rapid spread of the disease through New York City's facilities, killing over 6,000 nursing home residents. New York City public school teachers and staff have questions about how they were asked to deal with COVID-19 prior to the decision to close schools in March and concerns about how to open, reopen safely in the fall. 
According to MTA's Inspector General, the cops added last year to police the subway resulted in a large increase in overtime costs, but no reduced complaints or delays stemming from the presence of homeless New Yorkers on the subway. And in election news, The Real Deal outlines the primaries most closely watched by the real estate industry, which include the full NYC DSA slate, plus Assemblymember Diana Richardson's primary against Jesse Hamilton. City and state covered the dynamics in the three-way race for State Senate District 25. NYC DSA endorsees Jabari Brisport and Samelis Lopez were interviewed by The New Yorker as part of a look at leftist challengers to Democrats in today's primaries. The Independent's coverage of the primaries includes a summary of the Democratic Assembly Campaign Committee's spending and interviews with DSA endorsees Farah Safran Forrest, Zoran Momdani, Marcella Matanes, and Samilis Lopez. And in other election news, The Intercept highlights several competitive down-ballot races, including 10 local assembly races. The Brooklyn Democratic Party endorsed every incumbent facing a re-election challenge, except for Assembly Member Diana Richardson of Crown Heights, who is facing a challenge to her right from former IDC Senator Jesse Hamilton. The party did not endorse a candidate in that race. The Gotham Gazette analyzed the 2018 primary's increase in voter turnout and speculated if a similar scenario would play out in today's primary. Republican State Senate Minority Leader John Flanagan is resigning for a private sector job on June 28th after previously announcing he would not seek re-election in November. Less than two years ago, Flanagan was the Senate Majority Leader and one of the most powerful men in New York State, but he appears to have lost interest in public service thanks to poor future GOP prospects in the state legislature. State Senator Robert Ort of Western New York is likely to replace Flanagan as the Minority Leader. National figures and organizations stepped into the 16th Congressional District race in the Bronx and Westchester. National DSA and Lower Hudson Valley DSA endorsed Jamal Bowman and were joined by Elizabeth Warren and California Rep. Katie Porter. Hillary Clinton and Republican Super PAC and members of the Congressional Black Caucus endorsed Elliot Engel, who appears to be mobilizing much of the centrist Democratic establishment to salvage his incumbency. And finally, in the open race to succeed Rep. Nita Lowy in New York's 17th Congressional District in Rockland County, a private poll suggests that Mondaire Jones is the most viable candidate to defeat ex-IDC member David Carlucci. Our daily, our weekly headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So before we get to our main subject of the day in our interview with Nas, we uh, want to just give a brief election update. Um, And while RPM does not endorse any candidates in any elections, the Democratic Socialists of America have. And we'll be updating you on their campaigns during this hour and on WBAI's election night special tonight from 8 to 9 p.m. DSA for the many is NYC DSA's multi-candidate slate for state offices. The endorsed candidates are Jabari Brisport, Julia Salazar, Marcelo Matinis, Farah Sufrant Forrest, and Zoran Mamdani. For federal races, NYC DSA has endorsed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Samuelis Lopez, while Lower Hudson Valley DSA has endorsed Jamal Bowman. Polls stay open until 9 p.m. If you haven't voted yet, and feel safe heading to the polls, make sure your vote is counted. If you're having any issues at the polls or have questions about voting, 
please call 866-700-5927. Again, that number is 866-700-5927. And before we get to our interview, uh, earlier in the day, and we'll kind of share some more clips from this later, uh, we were out speaking to volunteers on the streets, and we ran into DSA-endorsed candidate Farah Soufrant Forrest. So let's roll that clip for you. So we're out here on election day, and we ran into one of NYC DSA's great candidates, Farah Soufrant. So, Farrah, like, we're like, what is the energy you're sensing out here today as people are going to the polls? And like, how do we connect this like one campaign, your election, to the broader struggles that are happening on the ground? And how do we continue to push forward in the struggle for Black Lives and the struggle for socialism? Right. I mean, the energy out here is so infectious. People are coming out because they want to make a difference. They want to see a difference in their community. Like when they hear about a school teacher, when they're talking about Jabari Brisport, or they're talking about me, um, a union nurse, they are so excited because they're like, oh my God, this is not politics as usual. This is not a regular politician. Here we have something different. And when we look at the alternatives, actually I had a co-worker that came up to me and they dated me and were like, oh my God, Farrah, these are crazy times. And it's not true. Like we're talking about well-controlled times. We're talking about time to organize, time to strategize. Like this is the time that we were waiting for when we talk about change and lasting change, change that really will make a difference to the people in this community. So to be a part of that, to be the alternative is just an exciting, it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. Well, thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to talk with us, and we wish you the best of luck. Yay! And that was Farah Safrant Forrest, and uh, she is one of the many NYC DSA candidates running today, and we will update you on their races later in this episode and then tonight on WBAI's election night special from 8 to 9 p.m. So now we're going to transition into kind of a a very uh, serious subject, um, something that uh, listeners may have heard of if they are uh, been paying attention to the reaction from the government to these protests. And we are joined by uh, Naz Ahmad to uh, discuss uh, this issue and kind of the broader criminalization of dissent. Uh, Naz, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, joining us on Revolutions Per Minute. Thank you for having me. So... Uh, and, and feel free to, if you, while answering this question, if you want to give the audience a little bit of your background. But I figured that um, since this issue is, uh, you know, happening right now, it's it's right at hand that we dive right in. So, as I was saying uh, in our introduction, Aruj, uh, Roman, and Colin Ford Mattis are facing potentially life in prison for supposedly destroying a police car. The uh, judge to, today during the bail hearing, I um, supposedly referred to them as uh, akin to the weather underground. Um, but regardless of that comparison, locking someone in a cage for life seems like a far more violent act than lighting a car on fire, even if that is what happened. 
So what reason does the government have for pushing for such a harsh sentence? Is this an anomaly or does it represent a trend towards more vicious retribution by the state against protesters? And what can our listeners do to help them and other political prisoners that are suffering from state violence? Well, um, thank you again for having me. And just so your listeners uh, know where I'm coming from, I'm a senior staff attorney at the Clear Project at CUNY School of Law. We serve and represent communities targeted by so-called national security law enforcement practices um, around the city and support movements. Um, And so to your first question, um, in terms of what reason does the government have for pushing for such a harsh sentence? I think the fact that um, for those of you who have, you know, really been keeping track of this, the um, the government initially brought like a limited set of charges and then brought in the scope of charges, which means that they're facing um, possibly uh, life in prison. And, you know, other people have commented on this and it it is part of the larger um, feature of of our criminal justice system, these mandatory minimums and charging people with crimes that face mandatory minimum sentences like is really a coercive, essentially bargaining tactic. Um, And I would assume that it's it's done with the intent to secure as long a possible jail sentence for them and to remove um, remove discretion from the judge as to as to how much the judge may want to depart from uh, the sentencing guidelines in terms of um, actually sentencing them. Because at the end of the day, um, judges do have discretion and can explain in reasons why they might depart from a guidelines rec- recommended sentence. And so I think that's a huge that that's playing a huge role here in terms of just like the number of charges and what kinds of charges they're pursuing. And in terms of your second question, um, is this an anomaly or does it represent a trend towards vicious retribution by the state against protesters? You know, I'll say that um, this seems to be part of a larger pattern of the FBI, of the Department of Justice, federalizing charges that could otherwise have been brought in state court. There's really no reason that these charges couldn't have been brought in state court. Um, And so it's a little, it is a little bit puzzling that these cases out of other cases are being brought in federal court. And this is not restricted to New York. Obviously, this has happened around the country um, since the protests um, after the killing, uh, the murder of George Floyd occurred. And I will say that, um, you know, in in terms of federalizing these charges, in particular, you know, these these two um, people, um, you know, it's a way for the federal government, it's a way for the Trump administration to, you know, claim a stake in the broader, like, I guess you could call it culture war, whatever you want to call it, um, the discussion. Um, arguments, whatever, that are going on right now, and in a way for them to um, claim responsibility um, and claim uh, authority for for what's happening um, in terms of response and saying, look, we didn't take this um, sitting down. This was an attack on the police. Again, like, let's just remind everyone, allegedly they might have, allegedly they threw 
something in a in a car that was already burning. No one was in it. Um, so I think that's really important um, to keep in mind. It's not clear whether they will seek to bring the same kind of um, coerciveness in terms of multiple charges involving mandatory minimums against all people who've been arrested. Um, in in the wake of the protests, there are other people who've been charged around the country with very like similar circumstances, arson on, on police cars, but it, you know, remains to be seen. Um, you know, and it's no coincidence that the two defendants, you know, are a, a young black man and a young uh, Muslim American woman. Um, and then to your third question, um, in terms of what can your listeners do to help them, um, I think just showing up and, and staying in tune and staying um, aware of what's happening in their case. There are a couple of fundraisers um, for their for, um, expenses associated with, you know, representing them. They, they both they both are being represented for free is my understanding. Um, Mr. Mattis has uh, an attorney appointed under the Criminal Justice Act. Um, she's a former federal defender, spent a long time in the federal defender's office. And I believe um, there are two former AUS um, federal prosecutors who have stepped in pro bono um, to represent Ms. Um, Rahman. Um, and so that's, I think, in terms of helping them specifically. And um, I'm sure, again, people who've been following this kind of know the, their background and the situation that, that both of their families are in. Yeah, I, th- I think you, you raised a, r- a number of really, really crucial points. And in, in particular, in reference to who these individuals are, uh, the the point you're making about, you know, their, their identities as a young black man and mm-hmm. a young Muslim American woman, two, peop- two groups that have been targets, not just for the Trump administration, but for the um, authoritarian right in this country for decades, um, and particularly mm-hmm. the latter uh, during the war on terror. And that's something I actually want to kind of uh, build off on in a second. But also, they're both people who have been fighting for the oppressed, for the marginalized, for for tenants. And uh, mm-hmm. fighting for tenants is something that uh, obviously is uh, heinous to someone like Donald Trump who thinks that landlords should be able to do whatever they want or for refugees, um, some something that the Trump administration, uh, people he regards as less than human. But obviously, I don't want to make this issue about Trump. This is about the federal government, the way it's been acting in previous administrations, like the Obama administration was uh, targeting whistleblowers and Going back to the war on terror, you've starting um, in the early 2000s, you have an increasing and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, an increasing role of the federal government in these sort of prosecutions, um, taking away power from the state and using increasing draconian policies to make sure that information doesn't get out and that these uh, court proceedings are as secret as possible. Um, And I think uh, maybe this question can kind of address that and maybe if if my characterization was uh, wrong there uh, please correct it um, but like what does this case and others like it reveal 
about what or who the criminal justice system serves and protects? And how can people fight back against an increasingly brazen police and carceral state? So in, um, there's before I answer this question, there is one thing that I want to you know point out. Um, going back to your point about you know the identity of these um, two defendants, um, I would note that you know so um, um, an agent of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force, is the person who swore out the complaint in their case, and this was even before Attorney General Barr had issued his directive on May 31st, deploying the JTTFs, the regional JCTFs, to investigate um, activities around the protests. Um, but back to your question about, you know, who or what the criminal justice system serves and protects, I mean, it's this is so clearly an example of, um, of you know, how so often, like, property and uh, just literally property is valued over actual human beings mm-hmm. and how, like, you can, I don't know if you can draw a direct, correct, oh, sorry, a direct line, but you can draw a line connecting this and, like, um, stand your ground laws that allow people to, you know, claim self-defense, shooting somebody who comes in your home, things like that. And, uh, and I think... You know, one thing that I kind of one thing that I took away from listening to the court hearing today, um, again, this was so what had happened is that two judges in the Eastern District of New York, a magistrate judge and then a district court judge had had granted them bail and the government didn't like that. And so they sought um, an appeal with the federal court of appeals that covers New York, the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit was um, considering that appeal today. And one thing, one kind of impression I almost took away from hearing the judges' questions today was almost that they were holding holding the two of them to a different standard because they were lawyers, um, because they were educated as lawyers. Um, but it it's um, it's just clear again because even on the facts that that are alleged, it's it's. Uh, even on the facts that are alleged, there's no indication that they were that um, they were setting out to harm any person, and and in fact that the car may have actually already been damaged by the time they were alleged to have you know thrown like a Molotov cocktail there. And so, I mean, I'm sure it's not news to anybody who regularly listens <laughs> to your show, but that um, he like. The human beings are just considered disposable and that we can just lock them up away and not think about them anymore and not realize what it does to them as as human beings and what it does to us as society to just um, consider them as disposable. And then I think you, sorry, you asked another question, which was how can people people fight back against an increase, increasingly brazen police and carceral state? You asked that question. Yes, that was the the second question. <laughs> um, so, I think you know um, this movement has been really inspiring, and I will say that I, you know, as um, and that anybody who's who who's watching it knows that it's different, um, and the effects of it have been different, and so. 
I think it's really just a matter of like continuing to find ways to put pressure on, on those in power and, and ways to rearrange the systems of power um, that so often, um, yeah, rearrange the systems of power that are like currently designed, literally designed to like disenfranchise people, um, impoverish them, make them sick, keep them sick, etc. I mean, we all know with, with the pandemic that like, you know, the people in power have essentially like, you know, in some sense, just like left us to die, have, have just accepted that we're going to have like a high death rate. And we're just kind of going around as like, as though, okay, yeah, back to business as usual. And so I think the, the thing that's been so um, inspiring about this movement is, is the number of people coming out and the number of people that even I know who would normally not have been engaged or thought about these things or even talked about them are talking about them. And so I actually see the, like the protests in the small towns that are not New York city or that are in the places where, you know, you're like one of 20 people and you know, everybody else. And it's really brave because you have to like face these people on a daily basis in a way that maybe like me showing up to a protest in New York city, you know, doesn't, um, I find that really inspiring. And so I, I think it's just a great reminder of like, um, you know, the court is not, the courts are not going to save us. The law is not going to save us. Like only we are going to save us. So. I think that's a really, really uh, critical point and something that I'd like to, expand upon in a little bit, but I do just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI here in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. Or you can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about both the Democratic primary elections that are happening here in New York, as well as the draconian response of the American uh, state to protesters, uh, specifically this case here in New York, where two lawyers are being threatened to be locked up for life for throwing a bottle at a cop for allegedly throwing a bottle at a cop car. And, you know, when you're you're tuning into corporate media and they're either going to they're going to focus on, oh, the horrible violence of all these looters and how how bad they are and how we need to have controlled, quote unquote, peaceful protest, even as the state unleashes horrific violence, um, both through police brutality, as you see during these protests, but every single day, not preparing people with the resources they need for the pandemic, not sending people off to die in horrific wars and killing way more people uh, outside of this country in those conflicts. And those sort of stories are not told on most media outlets. But here on WBAI, we are a community radio station. We are of, by, and for the people. And we're, we don't 
have corporate donations. We don't have commercials. We're, we don't take that sort of money because that sort of money corrupts the process. It corrupts the message. It takes away being part of the people. So, you know, during this time, uh, we're really, really asking uh, our WBA listener community to contribute to the station if you can. One way to do that, and I think this is uh, the best way going forward because it really makes you a steady part of the WBAI community is to become a WBA buddy. You can do that by going to WBAI.org and just kind of scroll down the buddy option. It should be right there in the center. You click on that. Once you click on that, you fill in your information. Maybe Revolutions Per Minute is your favorite show. Select that. Let the station know so they can bring more socialist content. You could have more interviews like we're having today talking to Nas about this really uh, disturbing situation where you have protesters being threatened to be locked up for the rest of their lives for doing something that pales in comparison to what the police do every single day. And we're going to have some uh, specific revolutions per minute premiums coming in the future. But right now, you can get an amazing tote bag, a membership card. Um, you can get a WBA mask as you walk around and try and com- keep your community safe. If you exceed a $25 donation for the year, you become a voting member and you get to elect the listener representatives on the WBAI station board. We have democracy within this institution and your donations keep that democracy alive. And so you can either become a buddy or if you just want to give a one-time donation, you can also go to the website that I mentioned before, WBAI.org, or you can call in 516-620-3602. Again, that is 516-620-3602. So, you know, as someone here as a producer, I'd really appreciate your donation with Revolutions Per Minute. But we're all part of this station. This is a community. This is something that is broadcasting for the people. And so if you've got the funds, please contribute. Uh, So to turn back to our conversation, something that I've been hearing when I've been out in the streets and something that I think has been a really critical practice that I've learned from listening to comrades over the years is the phrase, we keep us safe that once you have a real understanding of the state and what you're talking about before, that the police are around to protect property. And I think it's really made emblematic in this, uh, you know, case because you have being threatened with lifetime in prison while most of these killer cops uh, get away with nothing but a pat on the back. Many of them uh, get to keep their jobs or they move to another department is kind of the worst consequence they face. You know, and I'm abolitionist, so I don't see prosecution as the solution to this. But I kind of think the absurdity in what people get sentenced for really highlights the uh, way that the system is designed to protect property. So with kind of all that that framework in mind, uh, how can organizers keep themselves safe at street at, at, from the state at actions like what do protesters need to know about their rights and how can protesters avoid accidentally endangering or incriminating their comrades yeah I'm, I'm glad you asked this question so one thing that we do at clear is we provide know your rights workshops 
Um, and most of them are, we do them on a bunch of different topics, but um, one topic is, you know, how to deal with, you know, what to do if law enforcement shows up at your door or asks you questions. Um, and I think that, you know, again, anyone who's been paying attention knows that what you might have expected going to a protest or a march four months ago um, is not what you might have, you would have experienced in early June, late May, early June here in New York City. Um, so in terms of just actually like on the street, I'm, I'm not sure that there's really, you know, much you can do except for like things that you might perceive as like common harm reduction techniques to um, not, uh, you know, to avoid certain things. But that doesn't mean that like you can completely avoid the risk of getting arrested or being harassed or hurt by the police. Um, so I'm just I'm going to focus on like what to do if um, you do get arrested. Um, and, and some of this will, would apply regardless of, you know, whether you've actually been arrested. And um, I think the, the biggest and major thing, again, and, and, and to go back to your point about, like, we keep us safe and, like, keeping your movement safe and keeping the movement safe generally is, like, is just, if you, if you don't have a lawyer present, don't ever talk to law enforcement for any reason. Um, there's really no good reason to give law enforcement any information um, without a lawyer present. Um, if you're on the street, um, you know, you, you, they, the police can say that if you don't give them your name, that they can take you to a precinct to identify you. Um, and so if you are undocumented or otherwise at risk for de deportation, it's really important to consult an immigration attorney, um, in terms of like thinking about what ID you might want to carry with you and what risks there might be to you if you, um, go out to a protest or march. Um, the other, like, other things are, you know, don't consent to a search of your phone. So basic things like turning off fingerprint ID or turning off face ID and setting, like, a long alphanumeric passcode to your phone and encrypting your phone and not giving them permission to search your phone if you get picked up. Um, some of you might have heard that um, I believe in the week between um, June 1st and June 8th that FBI agents and NYPD Intelligence Bureau folks were at precincts and or I think at central booking arrest, uh, sorry, questioning people who had been arrested, who'd been arrested as part of the protests. Um, and they were asking them a lot of questions about, as far as reporting goes, um, how they like what kind of social media they have, what social media they follow, are they connected to Antifa, things like that. And it's really important in that scenario, like if for whatever reason you get arrested and somebody pulls you to another room and they are like, oh yeah, I'm with the FBI. Again, don't answer their questions. You don't have to answer their questions just because you're in the precinct or a central booking doesn't like mean that you have to answer your, their questions. Um, and then in terms of like protecting other people and like, again, keeping each other safe, um, I would just think long and hard about how you post on social media or share and, and what you post. I, I would highly recommend um, downloading apps that allow you to like blur out faces or other identifying features like birthmarks or tattoos. 
um, removing the metadata from the photo. So you take a photo, then take a screenshot of the photo and then post it. Um, you don't know like what the vulnerability, you may not know what the vulnerability of the people in the picture you're posting is. And so that's really, that's really why it's important to, um, to think about that before posting those kinds of things. Like, so for example, when curfew was still in effect, um, you know, posting a picture of somebody outside while curfew was in effect and like they, they weren't an essential worker, you know, that could have opened them up to like prosecution theoretically. I mean, who knows like how likely the DA's office was going to go after somebody in that position. But if that person isn't a citizen um, and they ever want to apply for citizenship, then, you know, there's a question on the citizenship form um have you ever knowingly committed a crime or an offense that you have not been arrested for? And that's something that like, you know, you'd have to answer yes for if, if you know, and, and you, like to just think about those things, not everybody's coming from the same level of like privilege or protection um, in terms of, you know, their, how they're out there. Um, so yeah, that, that's, all I wanted to cover, uh, just one other small thing is like, if you get arrested, don't agree to give up your DNA or, and, or don't, um, maybe indirectly give your DNA by like drinking a can of Coke if it's offered to you. Um, yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing all of those really, really important, uh, tips for any listeners who are heading out to the streets or maybe just are end up getting arrested for doing nothing wrong, which happens to people all the mm -hmm. time in this increasingly authoritarian state where we have a uh, what is the seventh largest army in the world, the NYPD occupying or at least seventh most well-funded occupying our streets uh every single day. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And if, is there, uh, before you, uh, hop off, how can people get in contact with CUNY clear? And is there any uh, final thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, thanks. So, um, we are on Twitter at CUNY, um, underscore clear. Um, we have a website, www.cunyclear.org. Um, and if the FBI ever shows up at your door or otherwise tries to question you, you can contact us. We can, if we can't represent you for free, we'll most likely be able to connect you with somebody who can. Um, and again, I would just give a plug for, um, I'm sure it, it, it's probably easy to find online. There are a couple of funds set up for Aruj, Aruj uh, Rahman and Colin Mattis um, for their legal fees. So thank you again for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we will share all of those links in the show notes. So um, we're going to uh, transition back uh, there to the uh, Democratic primary elections. While the state is increasingly using force against people, there are still some structures in our society that are at least somewhat accountable to the people. and. Uh, DSA as an organization has um, been organizing and hitting the streets in multiple ways uh, over the past few months through mutual aid, uh, through getting involved 
and these actions and a number of ways that we've been covering on the show in the struggle for black lives. But uh, we've DSA has also continued uh, to fight for its endorsed candidates who are fighting for the working class at the ballot box. And earlier today, both I and co-host Lee Zishi were out in the streets talking to candidates, to organizers, to other volunteers, uh, to hear their thoughts about getting involved in the electoral process and fighting for socialist candidates uh, at the ballot box. So let's roll that clip of the get out the vote uh, right now. on the streets on election day here with some volunteers so uh what's the vibes you're getting out here what's the energy like hey it's brendan from central brooklyn dsa um nothing but good vibes um most people very positive getting a lot of people saying that they already voted for farah so i'm really happy i'm um, hoping jabari wins hoping marcella wins hoping you know everybody else wins um honestly the worst part about today is it's a little too hot <laughs> I definitely feel that. On the field side of the work that I have been doing, um, I am both talking with voters um, and making sure that they know about our candidates um, and that they know how to vote, but I also get to be involved in the strategy of um, where we are, where we are connecting with those voters, um, which neighborhoods we decide to focus on um, and really seeing where we can enfranchise the most working class people and give them a voice in New York politics. Um, for too long, um, I think the people of Brooklyn have not been not been listened to and our politics have not been represented in our elected leaders. People want affordable housing, people want universal health care, people want climate justice because we are feeling the, the these burdens um, that uh, that our elitist electeds have placed on us um, and and we want that kind of um, that kind of hope for something better. Um, and I think that through the work that we've been able to do with this huge slate of candidates. We've connected with a lot of voters and we've given them their agency their agency back, um, which is really exciting and meaningful. But we're also building the socialist movement, right? We are um, agitating people on the basis of class and we're telling them that the problems that they are experiencing are not personal problems. 
they are systemic issues um, and we're pulling them in through these elections, but not just for election day, it's part of a larger movement. So, um, you know, I think that the work I've been able to do in DSA is like such a tiny, tiny piece of all of this movement building. And I, I want to be out here because I think it's more, it's just so important that we have more public school teachers, more nurses, more working class people in office. We've sort of tried something new this year, which was forming DSA for the Many, which is a multi-candidate committee, um, which is different from a PAC. It's more similar to a party in a sense because it is uh, allowed to do unlimited spending, um, but is still subject to regular contribution limits. So that means if you have a like a grassroots fundraising operation, um, you can really do a lot to support the candidates. Like we bought a round of paid mailers for everyone. We paid for all their phone making tools. Um, so that's been really exciting that we're able to support that kind of uh, infrastructure. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to do that again um, for future elections. Uh, we're having a, an event for all of the candidates tonight. Um, it's called our wait and, Watch and Wait Party, um, hosted by Kath Barbadaro. Um, and we're going to be hearing from all of the candidates once um, once they're ready to make a statement. And uh, if people want to check that out, uh, the link is bit.ly slash DSA dash E-Day, all lowercase. That's a B-I-T dot L-Y slash D-S-A dash E-D-A-Y. How have you found the volunteer experience? You know, have you had any like really great conversations with people? And yeah, people are receptive to these things. I mean, I've done phone banking since March and am blown away by just how open people are to what I expected to be difficult conversations. For the most part, even of course things have the needle's been shifted recently. So to say that I want police abolition two months ago is different than saying it this week, but even two months ago, to say those things, people really met it with, with open ears. Um, and it's easy to identify the people who aren't with it too, which is uh, maybe disheartening, but they make themselves known pretty quickly. I've gotten some kind of dispiriting calls um, just of people who, I guess, like corporate money. <laughs> so. But yeah, overall, lots of inspiring calls on my on my phone banks. Lots of inspiring conversations on the street. Um, I mean, when you have a politician who is based in the neighborhood, and you can just frame a lot of their politic in that, it just makes the conversations flow pretty easily. There's not a lot of convincing you have to do to tell someone someone grew up in the neighborhood, understands the ravages of gentrification. It's easy to do. <laughs> And you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Connect with us after the show. You can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today we've been talking about both this kind of 
really brutal response from the government, uh, in particular the federal government, uh, but obviously we've all seen the police brutality, against protesters, um, not just by beating them up in the streets and firing tear gas at them, which has killed people, but also um, threatened to lock people up for the rest of their lives for throwing uh, water, throwing bottles at cop cars, allegedly, while uh, cops seem to be able to murder people with impunity. So that was one thing that we discussed. But we're also talking about the uh, Democratic primary elections here in New York. Uh, there are a lot of very exciting races. Today, we were just kind of sharing sounds from the streets. Uh, as you were hearing early on, you had... Uh, some NYC DSA candidates like Jabari Brisport, Marcelo Matanis, who were out in actions earlier this week, not just, you know, talking the talk, but walking the walk, participating in this struggle for black lives, fighting for tenants against um, both the real estate industry, but also their army, who is the police. That's who kicks people out of buildings. Uh, that is become as this kind of struggle has made very very clear who they serve they serve the interests of capital they are an army on behalf of property they do not defend the people they actually attack them whenever they assemble in open so this has kind of been we're trying to kind of cover the intersection of of these seemingly disparate issues because you know electoral politics uh gets a lot of the attention, but for the wrong reasons, for the uh, when talking to people about the horse race or the, the personality or kind of the new favorite word, electability, uh, which really, I think, helped boost Joe Biden's prospects in the national election, uh, in the national Democratic primary and stymied Bernie Sanders momentum, even though if you went issue by issue, his platform was far more popular. But we've kind of in terms of at least that. Uh, arena of struggle within the Democratic uh, Party, we've moved now more towards the down ballot races, where in actually in, um, in Philadelphia and D.C., in their most recent elections, you saw a lot of success for socialist candidates that were backed by the Democratic Socialists of America. And we're seeing if the New York City Democratic Socialists of America can build upon the momentum that they gained in the last uh, set of elections in 2018, when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Julia Salazar uh, won those uh, primary elections. And they're both up for re-election, and they're joined by a number of candidates. That is uh, Jabari Brisport, Ju uh, Marcelo Mantanis, Farah Front Forest, Zoran Mandani, uh, as well as Semeliz Lopez, and uh, the Lower Hudson Valley DSA-endorsed Jamal Bowman. And the eye, eyes are really on the uh, Jamal Bowman race nationally as he goes up against um, Elliot Engel, someone who said he would not care what was happening in his district if he wasn't being primary and spends all of his time down, living down in Maryland, uh, where he lives in you know, one of the wealthiest communities there, which is a bit interesting because it's not like in his Westchester district he can't find... Uh, a nice home that's uh, isolated from the majority of his constituents if he really wanted to. Uh, but uh, I guess I'm not going to get too much into his particular choices. But I think 
what something that is on the plate that is being pushed and really highlights uh, why these elections are important is that you have these DSA candidates. Uh, they're backing the defunding the police platform. They're out there. They're actually engaged in struggle and not just promoting themselves, but really I, I saw Jabari speak outside of the, uh, the Metropolitan Detention Center a couple weeks back. He didn't even mention that he was running. He just he spoke about the platform, about the program, about the fact he was this black socialist, about that he is an abolitionist and opposed to this carceral state and the need for funding to be taken away from state violence and given back to the working class people in our communities, particularly the black and brown uh, members of our community who have been most brutalized by this violence. So I, as long as... uh, with Michael Carter, who uh, who has been on Revolutions Per Minute before, will be doing special election coverage for WBAI tonight from 8 to 9 p.m. We will be covering all these elections. The results won't be coming in yet, though. So we'll be kind of focusing on promoting the voices of people on the ground, trying to give you an update from um, you know what we're hearing about the support. And from being out in the streets, at least here in Brooklyn, it seemed like the momentum is behind these NYC DSA candidates, even as they try, are smeared by establishment Democratic politicians like Lori Combo, who uh, yesterday was tr- trying to claim that Jabari is supported by gentrifiers, even though it's the real estate developers who are behind her uh, city council position, who are the ones who have been pushing out black and brown communities here in New York so that capital can flow in. Never, don't let these people trick you. Their base of support is not the black community. It's not the brown community. It's the rich, white, real estate and financial executives who live in Westchester and Long Island, whose money flows into the city. So don't let these people trick you. And we're going to continue to build upon that narrative tonight from 8 to 9 p.m., here on WBAI 99.5 FM. But this has been your weekly edition of Revolutions Per Minute. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I want to thank our guests and everyone we heard from on the street today. And we will be back. Uh, we'll be on, we'll on tonight at 8, and then we'll be back with you uh, next week, Tuesday at 5 p.m. This is Jack Devine with Revolutions Per Minute, and we'll uh, see you both on the streets and on the airwaves.